Today we're uh, wrapping up our series in Matthew 5 as we've been looking at the Beatitudes and applying them to our families. Uh, finishing that up today with the last Beatitude that Jesus gives us in Matthew 5. So if you've got your Bibles turned there, you can also look on the little sheets that we gave you as you came in this morning. Or you can follow along with our Version Live event on one of your smart devices, your mobile devices, if you so choose to do that. I know a lot of you guys like using your Bible on your smartphone, and I love that because it lets you have the Bible wherever you are. You know, it just seems like a lot of times we leave our Bible, forget it somewhere, or too embarrassed to carry it in to wherever we happen to be going. But now on the, on our, with our technology these days, you can have it wherever you are, and you can have it in whatever translation you want to read it in, whether it's King James or ESV or NIV or NLT or uh, you can have Italian or you can have uh, whatever you want. So uh, I just uh, encourage you to be using that all that you can. Uh, so today we're wrapping up this series. And next week, I'm really excited about starting our next series called One. And it's all about what God says our lives ought to boil down to. It's all about simplifying everything and making everything focus in our lives. I, I don't know about you, but a lot of times for me, it seems like it's always about the juggle and always about trying to keep all the plates in the air, right? And, and making sure everything's good going well. And, uh, and clearly in Ephesians, he tells us that it's really all about one thing and he simplifies it down for us. And so we'll be spending several weeks looking at that starting next Sunday. But I'm really glad we get to wrap this series up today and look at Jesus' final beatitude as we talk about being the family. We've been looking, as you know, at these last, basically the last half of the Beatitudes, more or less, over the last several weeks. We've talked about this. We've read uh, these Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You're noticing the pattern that Jesus has in his Beatitudes? He's really clear. He gives uh, the, the character trait of the person who is blessed, and then he gives the blessing that they'll experience. So it's really kind of clear. He just goes back and forth like this time after time. But on this last final beatitude, Jesus breaks his style. He does it a little bit differently. And he really drags this topic out that we're going to be looking at today. Look at what it says in Matthew 5 verses 10 through 12. The only beatitude that's three verses long. He says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is really kind of dragging this out. He, he's changing his style because he's trying to communicate something really important. He's telling them that, that as a result of all of these character traits, of all of these beatitudes that he calls us to, he's saying you are going to find persecution. When you really live the Christian life, the Christ life, you will find persecution. And he really, really kind of rings their bell on this. 
And for those people, they really did find persecution, didn't they? I mean, persecution broke out right after Jesus' ascension back into heaven, right? I mean, it broke out with the stoning of Stephen, the very first martyr, and it got bad. For about 300 years, there was active, hostile persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. And it got so bad that at one point, they were actually rounding up the Christians and taking them into giant stadiums full of people and turning lions loose on them. Yeah, yeah, Christian persecution became popular entertainment. Yeah, it got really, really bad for a long time, and and those people had to endure a lot. But fortunately, you know, that was back then. You know, we live in the 21st century now. We don't have to worry about persecution anymore, right? Right? I mean, here we are, we, we are able to worship God uh, in a government-owned building in a public way. We don't have to hide it or conceal it. We get to openly and freely worship God together. And it's wonderful that we get to do this, right? We have air conditioning. We have nice, comfortable seats that fold up and down. And we have all of the translations of the Bible that we want at literally our fingertips at any time. Well, while we get to sit here in our air-conditioned and padded room, two Sundays ago in Pakistan, there was an attack on a church there where two suicide bombers blew themselves up and they killed 78 Christians worshiping together in a church over there. Yeah, two Sundays ago. Uh, Here's the quote from the Taliban-linked groups uh, here's the quote from the spokesman for that, from that group. He says, they are the enemies of Islam, therefore we target them. Christians make up about 4% of Pakistan's population of 180 million, and they tend to keep a low profile, as you can imagine, in that country. Attacks on Christian areas occur sporadically around the country of Pakistan, but Sunday's assault in a densely populated Christian residential area in the old walled city in Peshawar was the most violent in recent history. Back in 2009, 40 houses and a church were set ablaze by a mob of 1,000 Muslims in a small town in the Punjab province. At least seven Christians there were burned to death. Yeah, persecution happens in Pakistan. But you know it's not just Pakistan. Syria has been in the news a lot lately because of the unrest going on over there. Uh, In many Syrian towns, lawlessness has become the norm. Muslims have been known to rob churches and kidnap, rape, and even kill Christian women. Innocent bystanders simply making trips to the store and witnessing these events have been gunned down. Curfews have done little to make anyone feel safer or less fearful, so the Christian community bands together and prays. Hundreds of these Christian residents have watched their lives and their very freedoms slip away before their eyes. Homs, a city which has been occupied by both government and rebel forces for weeks, is now alone the site of more than 1,500 violent deaths. Persecution happens in Syria. Just this week, there was news of Christian persecution happening in a violent way in Kenya. You know that it happens violently in Asia, in India. Uh, Christian persecution happens all over that side of the world. But we're here in America. We don't have to worry about that, right? That's all over there. We don't have to worry about that here. Why is that? 
Because in the United States of America, depending on the survey that you read, between 76 and 80% of people identify themselves as Christians in the United States of America. 80% of us say we are Christians. 80% of families in America claim to be Christian families. So we call ourselves a Christian nation. Our dollar bill says, in God we trust. Right? You can go around Washington, D.C., and you can see all kinds of statues and inscriptions and all kinds of things that point to the glory of God. We are a Christian nation, right? But despite these astonishing numbers, you may be feeling the rising tide of persecution here in the United States. From the late night talk shows to the public media to the demonstrations out on the street, persecution here is on the rise, and it's coming. Why is that? Well, despite our astonishingly Christian numbers that we can post, uh, I don't know that we really ought to be calling ourselves a Christian nation because Jesus, in this very passage that we've been studying for the last several weeks, really makes it very clear. He identifies what a Christian, what a Christ follower looks like, right? I mean, just the Beatitudes that we've looked at, he, he lists these things. Jesus says a Christian, someone who follows him, is someone who, verse 6, hungers and thirsts for righteousness, Verse 8 is someone who is pure at heart. A Christian is someone, verse 9, who is a peacemaker. Now, can we look at these three characteristics of what Jesus says is a Christian? And can we say that this identifies us as Americans? Would you say that our culture values righteousness? Can you watch television and say that our culture values purity? Can you listen to today's music and say that we as a culture value peace with each other? I'm not sure that we can do that. In fact, I would argue that we are moving quickly away from the values that Christ Proclaims. I would say that climate change is a real thing, and the climate is changing against Christ. Why is that? Because the kingdom of this world is about me. It's about what's best for me. It's not about what's absolute. It's not about what God says is right and wrong. It's not about what God says is best. It's about me and what I think is best and what I should do for me. What makes me feel good. What makes me feel better. What makes me happy. That's what this kingdom is all about. And Jesus knew that we would face persecution as a result of this. In John 15, 20, he says, they will persecute you. They will persecute you. First blank on your page today is this, if you're following along, Jesus promised persecution. Jesus promised that there would be persecution. That's why he's dragging this out and he's telling us that you'll be blessed when you're persecuted. He tells us that there will be blessings in persecution. Look at the verse with me again. Matthew 5, 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you have persecution, it's because your blessing is that yours is the kingdom of heaven. 
This world, this culture, the people all around us, they are serving the kingdom of self. They're serving the kingdom of the individual. They're serving themselves and themselves only. They can't see beyond what's directly in front of them. They can only see what's better for them in the moment. They can only see what's better for their immediate family. They can only see what's good for them now as far as their relative truth dictates. But we serve a bigger and a better kingdom. You see, the different, the reason that we say that we're 80% Christians is because I, I really believe this. I, I think that most people in this country, they're, they're not, you know, Islamic. They're not Hindu. Uh, they're not Jewish, so they must be Christian, right? I mean, that's kind of what they think that they are. And so we have this epidemic of cultural Christianity, this epidemic of, of people, millions upon millions of people who believe that they are Christians, may even go to church, may even own a Bible, might even happen to open that Bible every now and then. And so they, they call themselves Christian, but when it comes down to living the life, they, they don't measure up. They don't value the things that Jesus values and calls us to value. They sell themselves short when it comes to Christ's values. And the difference between a cultural Christian family is this. is the, the situation we've talked about week in and week out in this series. Is that this. The key is your family being all about Christ. That's the next blank on your page. The key is your family being all about Christ. It's not about being a cultural Christian family. It's not about having a family that has a mom and or a dad and or a son and or a daughter and or Jesus. But the Christian family is the Christ-centered family, the one who, who has Christ in the center, who is living for Jesus, who understands who he is and is becoming more like him every day. It's the family that realizes that they're just a, a cluster of individuals that have nothing in common outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just because they share the same DNA does not mean they share the same eternal destiny. Because our unity is in the cross. Our unity is in Christ. It's in his life, his death, and his resurrection for us. That's where our identity really is. You see, we all try to navigate our own kingdom. We all try to have it best for ourselves and to live as best as we possibly can today uh, for the best that we know how. But we all fall short. The Bible says that all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all are broken and we have a corrupted view of what right and wrong is good and bad of who we even are we have a corrupted view of our own identity and because of that brokenness because of that corruption we can never have peace with God we can never have a relationship with God except for the fact that God wanted that relationship so much that he sent his son to come here to this world and to never have any sin of his own. And so Jesus living that perfect life for 33 years here in this world, he went to the cross with no sin. He went to the cross with no sin of his own. 
And on that cross, the Bible says that God took all my sin and placed it on Jesus. And he blamed Jesus for what I did. And he punished Jesus in my place. Jesus died for me so that I wouldn't have to. And on that cross, he took all of my brokenness. And with his resurrection, he replaces my brokenness with his completeness. He replaces my corruption with his righteousness and his holiness. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. His life in me. And so the Christian life is realizing that no matter what I do, it's going it's to fail. It's going to break. It's going to fall. The Christian life is all about surrender. It's all about laying our lives down for him and letting him live in and through us. That's what a family all about Christ is like. When he does this in us, when we surrender our life to him, he transplants me from this kingdom of self into his eternal kingdom. It's about him. He transplants me and it changes my identity. It changes who I am and how I live. It changes the way I talk, you know? I mean, the way I talk isn't going to be like the way the people of this kingdom talk. It changes the the things that I do and the places that I go. It changes the the type of language that's around me. It changes the type of movies I let my kids go see. It it changes the, the, the way that... I treat my coworkers. It changes the way I treat my family members. Uh, it, it changes my desires. It changes my morality. It changes everything about me. It changes the things that I lean hard into, and it changes the things that I run away from. It completely changes me from the inside out. And when we experience that kind of change, we begin to go against the grain of the kingdom of this world. We begin to go against the grain of the kingdom of self. And so when people who are living in the kingdom of self see us moving in a different direction, well, that causes conflict. That causes friction. They don't understand that. Well, why in the world would you let some old book tell you who you can live with and sleep with? Why in the world would you allow somebody to talk to you that way and still love and forgive them? Why in the world would you give any of your hard-earned money to some church that wants to get into a building and be permanent? Why would you do that? And those kinds of things make no sense to people in the kingdom of self And so when we live that way, it causes conflict. In John 15, Jesus told us this. He says, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of this world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. You remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. And since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. If they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. So Jesus, in our lives, brings conflict. It brings persecution. It's the result of us living for Christ. And this is the next blank on your page. I want you to think about this as you're filling these blanks in. But think about this. Here it is. If you have no conflict, maybe your lifestyle doesn't conflict. If you have no conflict, maybe your lifestyle doesn't conflict. 
If the way you live and the way you talk and the way you walk and and the way you forgive and the way you love, if it's not causing some kind of conflict, if somebody's not laughing at you or wondering about you or berating you or talking you down, if there's not some kind of conflict, then maybe your life isn't conflicting. Maybe there's no conflict there because you're moving in the same direction as the people in the kingdom of self. So my question for you today is which kingdom is yours? Which kingdom is yours? Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are you. When you hunger and thirst for me. When you're a peacemaker. When your heart is pure. And when you endure persecution. Because the kingdom of heaven is yours. Which kingdom is yours? Are you trying to blend in to the kingdom of self? Are you just trying to go with the flow? Are you trying just to fit in with the crowd? Hey, high schoolers, are you just trying to be like everybody else on your campus? Hey, co-workers, are you just trying to be like those other people there? Are you trying to always one-up their story or one-up their jokes? Or are you trying to always have another conquest to talk about? Or are you always trying to, to, to be like them? Or are you becoming more and more like him? Which kingdom is yours? So, here's my question for you today. And these are the next three blanks, and I've got to get through them pretty quickly. How can I prepare my family? If my family is going to be a Christ-centered family, if we're going to be all about Jesus, we're going to deal with persecution. So, how do I prepare my family for persecution? Three things I want you to jot down. I did not come up with these three things. I got them from another pastor. uh, But these are the three things he recommends. He says, number one, expect it. Number one, expect persecution. Jesus told us that we should expect it. And it wasn't just Jesus. Paul, the apostle, told his young uh, apprentice, Timothy, that he should expect the same thing. In fact, he says in 2 Timothy 3, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're going to live this life, if you're going to be surrendered to Christ, people are not going to understand. People are not going to speak the same language and there will be conflict. There will be persecution. So number one, just expect it. It's going to happen. Jesus promised it. As you're raising your children, you should be telling them to expect it. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how we tend to parent to the what and we tend to leave out the why. You know, hey, you should do this. You need to do this. Do this. Be this. Act this way. Don't do this. Be that. And we parent to the what, but we often, because we're parents and we're trying to juggle everything, uh, we often miss out on the why. Why do I need to be this? Why do I need to act this way? And so we need to be reminding our children all the time that they should expect people to laugh at them. They, they, should, they should understand that people are not going to understand why they can't go to those parties or why they can't go to those movies or why they can't always just stay up all night with their friends or whatever it happens to be. We have a different set of standards and you should expect that people are going to not understand that. So expect it. People are going to laugh. Hey, man, we'll get through it together. I'm right here with you. I'm your dad. Or I'm your mom. We love each other. And we serve Jesus. We don't serve our kingdom. We serve a bigger kingdom. Expect persecution. Number two is this. Endure it. Second, second thing is to endure it. 
James is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and it talks about how we should be thankful when we are going through times of trials because the testing of our faith produces endurance. And our endurance produces the work of sanctification that God does in our life. It's the sanctification process. It's how Jesus makes us more like him. He sanctifies us. He continues to make us holy and he does it through trials and persecution. That's how he works in our lives. So we endure it. First Corinthians four says, when we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. That's what we do as Christ followers is we endure it. We don't whine about it. We don't complain about it. We don't show up to church on Sunday. Oh, woe is me. Everything's falling apart. I'm just trying to be the best Christian I can be. And I keep getting laughed at and berated and yelled at. And nobody understands. Oh, it's just miserable in my life. No, we don't do that. We endure it. Not because we can stand through it on our own strength, but because we trust that God has a bigger, better kingdom in store for us. We know that he has promised that he will be faithful to us. So we endure it. The third thing is this. We embrace it. We expect it. We endure it. And we embrace it. That's right. 1 Peter 4 says this. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through as if something strange were somehow happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Yeah, so we should be glad. We should embrace it. What this means is when you're going through difficulty in your life and you're feeling like people are persecuting you, you gather your family around and say, hey, hey, we stand for Jesus. I hear what the other people are saying, but we stand for Jesus. Man, one of the most difficult transitions that my family has ever had to go through was uprooting our family life from where we were living over in Flowery Branch, Georgia, to move to the lovely metropolis of LJ. <laughs> you know, here we are living outside of Atlanta. We had been in the kind of suburbs of Atlanta uh, most of our lives. I mean, I, I was raised in Orlando in the suburbs, and my kids were raised in uh, Marietta and Flowery Branch here in Georgia. And so we were kind of used to that whole suburban deal. And my friends, my kids had friends there in town that they always played with in the neighborhood and everything. I mean, everything was great there. And um, all of a sudden, I, I really believed that God was leading us to LJ. I came here to work for a missions organization that's located up on Fort Mountain called Global Youth Ministry. And, and so we began the process of getting ready to leave. And my kids had to say goodbye to their friends. I had to say goodbye to a lot of my friends. And, and I had this question that people asked me. Okay, my Christian friends were asking me, why would anybody move to Elijah? Why would you leave the Atlanta area and move out into the sticks? Like, what is out there? Why would you go way out there? And my kids had friends asking them, why would you leave us? Why would you go away? And my kids were asking me, why do we got to leave everything we know and everyone we love? And why do we have to move way out into the woods like that? What, what, what is that all about? And we had to sit down together as a family 
and say, hey, everybody's asking these questions. Everybody's looking at us and saying, why would you do this? I mean, I literally had a friend of mine who is a worship leader who I called up at later on after we had been here for a while. And, and I said, hey, we're going to be starting a church here in LJ. I want you to think about coming up here and, and leading worship with us. And he's down in the suburbs of Atlanta. And he says, why would I ever go there? I want to move up in the world. I don't want to move down. I'm like, wow, that's not what Jesus did or said. <laughs> wow, glad I made that phone call. And so people would ask that question. And so we had to sit down and have a family meeting. And say, look, we follow Jesus wherever he calls. If he calls us to Elijah, or if he calls us to Kenya, or if he, if he calls us uh, to Europe, or if he calls us to Asia... I mean, if he calls us to give everything away and live in a ditch, we do what he says. And my kids said, you're right, Dad. We don't like it, but you're right. That's hard, but you're right. And we embraced the fact that God was calling us to something that he wasn't calling everyone else to doing. We embraced it and we live it. And here we are today, seven years later, faithfully obedient to him. I would love to say that every day has been easier than the day before, and it hasn't. Some days have been downright difficult, but we embrace it and we follow him. And sometimes when my friends, when I talk to my friends, they're like, hey, how's things up there in apple country? And they kind of snicker and laugh. I say, man, doesn't matter where you are. Being in God's plan for your life, being in his will there's nothing better. And by the way, the mountains are beautiful. And our fall will look a thousand times better than you ever dreamed. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we live for another kingdom, a different kingdom. Which kingdom is yours? Are you looking to move up? Because Jesus didn't. In Philippians, it tells us that he did not even consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he walked away from his throne. And he came in the form of a humble servant, obedient, all the way to the point of death. Death on a cross. That's the Jesus life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. Blessed are those who are pure at heart. And blessed are those who endure persecution as a result. Which kingdom is yours? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would be a a people who are marked by your seal, by your kingdom. God, I pray that we would not get distracted and be so short-sighted that we get focused on the kingdom of self and of this world. But God, I pray that you would make us into people who forsake the things of this world and who lay our lives down for you and for your kingdom. God, I pray that we would have boldness and confidence to move in faith, believing that you have a much bigger, much better kingdom for us to serve than the one that is tangible and visible around us. And God, I pray that our lives would always be lives of humility, lives of repentance, lives of serving you by serving others.